I'm Dustin Zahn, and this is Trainwrecks. It's been a while, but the podcast is back. Uh, This year has been full of longer breaks, and I'm trying to crank them out as fast as I can. But, uh, well, the handful of you that follow every episode kind of expected by now. And uh, the good news is that the next three or four are actually recorded, so they'll come out every couple of weeks. Um, Stay tuned for episodes with Anthony Parasoli, Cynthia, uh, Hyperactive and Truncate, Mike Gervais, and Cassie Grain. And, uh, well, the good thing that comes from this delay, partially, is that it's due to my studio schedule. I have tons of releases lined up for 2018, and some of them are actually pretty good. Uh, Speaking of releases, this podcast is paid for by my label, Enemy Records, so uh, if you're not broke after the holiday season and feeling merry, drop a few bucks on the label because it goes right back into the podcast. And uh, by the way, Merry Christmas. I hope yours was a good one. Mine was relatively low-key, which was very welcome. Um, a year ago, it was a completely different story. Uh, I had four gigs in five or six days. I was not only sick, but hung over the entire time. And, uh, well, I did Christmas Eve in Germany, Christmas Day in Italy, and then I had a 26-hour flight to and from Goa, India for uh, a gig just before capping off the year with the uh, New Year's Eve set in Bulgaria. Uh, Coincidentally, Goa is the last time that I ran into my guest for this episode, and her name is Tiana T., I tried to get Tiana on the show a while back, but she's a busy girl, and uh, she's regularly touring the world as a DJ under the dystopian banner. It's a label and agency, which also hosts the likes of Rod Hot and Recondite. Uh, As a DJ, she has pretty good taste, but from what I gather, she just has good taste in general. Um, When she came by, she picked all the good shit out of my candy jar and left me with the crap that nobody wants to eat. So there you have it. Uh, On top of being a DJ, she has a long history of uh, being a journalist, a vocalist, and a live performer. I won't dive too far into that because you'll hear it straight from the source. Uh, I'm I'm just going to jump into the show because it's a bit longer, but uh, one last thing before I go. Uh, I'm sorry, I got to get this stuff out of the way, but if you like the show, share links with your friends, leave the iTunes reviews, subscribe, and all that annoying crap. Uh, if you want to hit me up or if you have any beef with me, I don't know, please hit me up via email. Uh, otherwise have a good one. Enjoy the show. All right, Tiana, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I know we talked about it for a while. Sorry for being a few months late. (laughs) It's all right. It's happening and that's what's good. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of, you're in, did you play in Berlin this weekend? I'm not even sure to be honest. Yes. But I know you're kind of staying here for a minute. How did that go? Uh, it was it was great actually. It's this uh, new uh, place called Ost. Uh, someone told me it used to be some other club, but I'm not quite familiar with that. Okay. It's right across the street from Wilde Renate, and okay. uh, I'm quite impressed by the club and especially the sound system. It's one of the best I, I've ever played. Uh, it's got the Pioneer system, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, for me, I think like uh, I. I don't even know the the best sound system I ever heard, but I've I've been fortunate to play on some so many nice ones that it, it's hard for me to make that uh, 
that statement, but <laughs> I got to hear this system now. So yeah, it's it's quite good. Uh, it's it's in the top five. <laughs> nice. I th- I think for me, um, have you ever heard of that Void Incubus sound system? It's like the. Is it the one they have in Blitz in Munich? I haven't been to Blitz yet, but it's kind of. I think that's the one they have. It looks like kind of a transformer Ferrari. Yeah, thing. that's yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess the first, I don't know if it was a prototype or it was the first one that rolled out. It was in Russia um, maybe five, six years ago. It's a lot of money. And uh, I I couldn't believe what I heard. You know what I mean? Because when, when he first told me what it is, I think it's around like a million for the stacks or something. Oh, wow. And I, I still hadn't heard the system turned on. And then when you hear it, <laughs> like I was blown away. And uh, But that was also the problem. Like at that point, my... My album had was about to come out in one week, and then before the gig started, I started listening to my tracks on the on the system, and uh, I was like, <laughs> "Fuck!" I realized everything that went that went wrong with them because now I could hear it in detail, you know. So, yeah, I had a um, a similar shit. Sorry, <laughs> I had a similar experience um, when I got the PMC speakers for my home. Um, and it's the active uh, monitors and all of a sudden like a lot of music that i used to like and a lot of albums i used to listen to i just couldn't listen to anymore and i um had a bit of a disrespect to some people <laughs> but i guess maybe they didn't have um monitors good enough in their studio or something and in the end you know in the first months i ended up just listening to pink floyd and kate bush and all of these masterpieces that are so well produced mm-hmm. <laughs> that nothing can go wrong <laughs> well i mean that's a thing like um with those studios it was like multi-million dollar studios and granted a laptop goes a long way now but there's still you can't beat some of those things i don't worry about that um and the other part of it is though is that you know nowadays the just in the last 20 years the mastering has come along so much like you know obviously you're a dj and you're buying records all the time and whatnot and i feel like every two or three years the the average quality of um like the mastering and the, the sonic fidelity is just it gets better every time yeah that's know? true so that's true i have um yeah i i experience um some problems with my sets actually because i also play a lot of old tracks and old records and the difference in sound is so huge it's sometimes even hard to mix and the way it just comes out on the on the sound system is a bit problematic Mm -hmm. so i have the feeling like i should actually digitalize all these records and then remaster it again in order to play it and and have it in the mix with uh some more recent um, music it's kind of necessary because I have the same thing. There's some tracks that, you know, will always be favorites of mine and you play it and it just doesn't have that right bass. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't hold up to today's records and uh, you can just feel the energy in the room die down, even though the old track, because it's a classic, is infinitely better than whatever new <laughs> promo it is, you know. Um, but the thing is, is some of those tracks can't just, they can't be saved either because like there was never that bass never got recorded to begin with. You mm. know? Like, uh, true. I was at uh, Heiko Lox's house a couple weeks ago and one of my all time favorite tracks of him was on this Apatism record from, I don't know, probably 15 years ago. And he was playing it and I'm, I was like, what version is this? He's like, this is the original. This is from the dad. 
And he's like, everything got rolled off on this track. And he's like, this is what it was supposed to sound like. And it was completely different, you know? Crazy stuff. But um, let's get back. Let's let's start at the beginning with you because some people are aware of who you are and others aren't. So let's just get caught up. Yeah, I guess I guess there's a lot of people who are not aware <laughs> who I am. Um, what do you want to know? Well, you're from Serbia, right? Yeah, I'm from Belgrade, Serbia. Okay. That's true. And... About what, 10 years ago you started or was it even longer? Mm, my first DJ gig happened in 2005 and my first uh, live performance actually also happened in 2005. So it was 12 years ago. Okay, so you did a live performance also. Um, yeah, that's a f- that's an interesting story. Um, so I was uh, helping my friends promote this big party with a few people playing. It was Steve Bug, Alter Ego, and Abe Duke. So um, they asked me to take Abe Duke to a radio station I used to work for to um, do an interview. Um, we didn't speak much during the interview. He said he uh, his new ambition is to become the next Quincy Jones, and he's looking for his Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> and after the interview, he asked me, okay, so do you want to sing with me tonight? And I was like, "What? where did you get the idea that I could possibly sing? And he said, yeah, I, c- I can tell. You could sing, which was true, because I was singing in choirs for my whole life and even took some singing classes as a teenager. Um, and I was like, yeah, but I don't know. I don't know how your live act sounds. I have I know some of your tracks, but I I have no idea what what you're playing tonight. Um, so he said, "Yeah, we're, there's a sound check. We can go to the sound check and rehearse." Blah blah. So we went there. In the end, I said, "No, actually, you know what? I'm not gonna do it." <laughs> so uh, so we didn't have a sound check. Went back home, but I was thinking about it the whole day. I was really intrigued. And then um, when I came to the party, his uh, agents were there at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they started pouring this champagne <laughs> and shared it with me. And then he went on stage and he said, okay, so there's uh, another mic right next to me. So if at any point you want to go out and play, um, sing, just uh, just do it. So he was playing and the, uh, his both agents, their like husband and wife, were standing like right next to me and creating this sort of like pressure. Oh man! <laughs> and then and giving me these glasses of champagne. And at some point, he switched to some sort of like drum and bass. And I thought, and I used to love drum and bass as a teenager. And I thought, okay, this is my cue. I should just go out and do whatever. Um, so we improvised. The crowd went crazy. It went. It sounded good. It sounded decent for someone. I mean, for or what it was. Yeah. Um, and then he invited me to come to Berlin to record something a couple of months later. So I arrived here. They waited for me at the airport and they said, okay, so tomorrow morning you're taking a train to Frankfurt and you're playing in um, Offenbach, Robert Johnson, the Groove Magazine birthday party. Wow. <laughs> and the lineup was like Ricardo, Luciano, Magda, all these people at that time. It was 2005. Uh, so we again haven't rehearsed. Uh, so we we tried something on the on the way there on the trains and we played. And at some point, um, the power plug uh, went off. There was even some smoke coming out, and all oh, of it, all all of Abe's machines stopped because he had the proper life with all the machines. Mm-hmm. 
And the only thing that was uh, working was my mic because it was plugged directly to the DJ mixer and DJ mixer was plugged in another power cable. So I had to sing something a cappella to keep the <laughs> the vibe somehow going. And I couldn't remember any lyrics. Of I, course, I, you I, had the stage I, fright type yeah, thing. Yeah, but I generally don't listen to lyrics because I always treat vocal, uh, when I listen to music, I treat vocals as just another instrument. Like a melody or a, so, yeah. yeah. So most of the times, even for some of my favorite songs, I don't know the lyrics. It's the same with me. It's a, it, so I just discovered some, some of my uh, favorite songs' lyrics when I went to karaoke drunk a few times. And I was like, ah, that's what that, this song is about. Exactly. So anyways, uh, the, only, the only thing I could remember was this uh, um, pop, like Yugoslavian pop song from the 80s. So I sang that a cappella and nobody could understand the words. <laughs> <laughs> But somehow it went it all worked. right. Yeah, it worked. And, uh, and Abe replugged everything. And uh, Heiko, the editor-in-chief uh, of Groove, was there right behind us. And he wrote a big review. Um, and, of course, all superlatives about our live act. And after that, um, the agency started getting requests for uh, Abe and his new singer. Wow. <laughs> So we started uh, touring together and we did that for a few years. We had some releases together, but everything was quite wild and really rock and roll. Abe had this uh, apartment studio here in Berlin, so he showed me how all the machines are working so that I could perform with him together because th there's not so much space for vocals anyways. So mm -hmm. in order to keep me entertained, I was, um, yeah, so I started playing the 303 and Electribes and everything that we used. Um, and even the even like the releases that we have, it's basically all just like some parts or edits of some live takes while mm -hmm. I was learning to use all the machines. So it was quite, um, yeah, everything was quite wild. And a lot of, a lot of our uh, live acts were just like improvising with some pre like bass prepared. So it was quite, um, it was quite interesting and it was uh, wild times, um, wild times on tour. And parallelly, I started uh, these Monday night parties in Belgrade with a friend of mine. We were both uh, music journalists and mm -hmm. music reporters, and we were both creating uh, music TV shows and radio shows for some years. Um, and and we were interviewing DJs for years already, and every time I would be there at the party, or not every time, but most of the times, we would think, okay, we have better music at home, why don't we play? Uh, and then we started just for fun, and somehow this Monday night became quite popular. Of course, we didn't mix at all, it was just radio style, one mm -hmm. track after another. I was like, I actually never had an ambition to become a DJ or a performer, and everything just happened uh, by coincidence, like these... I mean, the DJing thing was just for fun and it became a bit more serious because I enjoyed it a lot and I wanted to learn how to do it properly. So um, I was basically practicing my mixing skills in front of full clubs. In front and when was this? <laughs> that, that was 2005, 6, 7. Okay, so it around took, the same time. Yeah, it took me it took me some years actually to learn. <laughs> um, and, um, and at the same time, I was traveling with Abe and doing this live act. But th this, um, uh, this career or this uh, adventure with Abe was something 
there was um, actually, I was somehow hiding it from everything that was happening in Belgrade. And mm -hmm. at that time that was possible because um, Facebook, MySpace and all these yeah. uh, social networks were not as developed and you could actually have a parallel life elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So in, in Serbia or in Belgrade, I was still, uh, I had my job, I was still doing uh, my music shows. And for fun, I was DJing with my friend on Monday night. And then on weekends, I would uh, go and play Bisa or some big festivals mm -hmm. around Europe, and nobody in Belgrade knew about it. <laughs> it was a beautiful time. Yeah, it, it, it was. I mean, I, I had the same thing going on. Like Around 2005, I was already traveling and touring quite a bit, but I also had a quote-unquote real job. <laughs> and uh, when it comes down to it, I was able to... I really got away with it. Like, even though I would do some crazy travels and show up on the weekends, I was just young and they'd be like, oh, he's tired. It's Monday, whatever, you know. But um, it wasn't until almost in, until the end of my whole stint with like the corporate world where this IT guy, because I worked in IT, came up to me and he goes, What's your deal? And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And he's like, Because uh, at this point, I think Gmail was already around. He's like, I had to send you something on Gmail for, through work or whatever. And uh, I saw your profile picture, and, and that's a fucking press picture. Like, what do you do? Because he's like, that's too, that's way too professional for your job. And then I, you know, I had explained to him, and then he thought it was awesome. But you know, like I, I made it that far without any of those people knowing. You know? Yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't hide it from my colleagues, um, and I didn't hide it from my friends. But from like general public, it was, it was quite. Um, yeah, I could have used it for PR or whatever mm -hmm. to promote myself, but I didn't. I didn't do it, and I mean, of course, I couldn't hide it entirely because my initial, my original job was very connected to this whole scene. So there would be people coming to Exit Festival or to Belgrade to DJ, and these would be the same people that I see while I'm touring on weekends. Sure. So it wasn't like it wasn't uh, possible to hide it entirely. Um, but yeah, that's how I started. And then I didn't really take myself... Uh, I stopped working with Abe around 2009, I think. Mm -hmm. because He, he moved back to the States. Yeah, so he basically stopped touring. Um, and um, I also... It, I mean, it was fun times and I was trying to be as serious as possible. But I always um, somehow considered it like his project. I didn't feel like it's um, something mine. It was more like... His thing, and I'm just like uh, an additional something. A backup, whatever. Yeah. But, I mean, wouldn't you agree in a way that maybe it was kind of the perfect situation, kind of like a primer to, you know, you can get that experience and then launch into your own thing? Um, yeah, I guess so. I was just not aware of uh, what's happening. I mean, we played the best clubs, we, ha we played the best festivals, we played uh, the best parties, and for me, the, the problem was that I didn't experience the shitty part of it, so I was immediately. I mean, okay, I was, I was actually thrown into fire for one. So I like my first, like my first performances were in front of some serious crowds, mm -hmm. uh, and in front of some serious people. Um, but on the other hand, for me, that was like normal. I thought yeah. every party is like that. <laughs> Yeah. So so then when I um when we stopped working, I continued DJing and I still didn't take myself seriously as a DJ. I just in, enjoy doing it a lot. Um and it wasn't until the whole media situation in Serbia has changed so much that I couldn't do what I was uh previously doing without making some serious 
ethical compromises um, that I started considering this as um, my only call. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when everything changed and that's when I became a happier person. <laughs> right on. I mean, I, I, there's a few things I want to ask you about that, but I think before we even start with those questions, we should move on. And the next part was basically you had a lot going on with uh, being a journalist and what, what was like the connection with Exit Festival, for example? Okay, so Exit Festival was the first music festival that we ever had in our country. And it also came right after the fall of uh, Milosevic and his government. So it was uh, the so-called democratic revolution in Serbia that changed everything and also the cultural environment. And at that moment, it was like a good wave. Uh, and um, Exit was huge. It was like the first good news that came out of Serbia after 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they started at the same time when I started my journalist career. Mm -hmm. So during the first Exit Festival, I was the most enthusiastic uh, reporter there. I did, I think like 100 and, was it 107 or 117 interviews? During, Holy shit, in one year? No, during oh. one, one festival. So I basically wow. interviewed Everybody. every single artist. Who was the biggest asshole? No, I'm just kidding. I know you can't say that on there. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's someone we both know, so <laughs> so I can't say. It. I'm finding out after the podcast. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so I was very enthusiastic, and I report, and I did very special reports from the festival, and also. Um, that that was also the time when the country was opening up, so there was a lot of. Uh, DJs, electronic acts, indie bands coming to play lo a lot more than before and I was pretty much one of just a few journalists who were following and reporting uh, about that scene and I somehow made it look glamorous so people, I would trick people with making it, making everything look more popular and more mainstream than it actually is and the audience would just fall for it. So yeah, but that's half the half the battle, right? As yeah, a journalist? That's, yeah, that's uh, that was pretty awesome. I really enjoyed that. So, anyways, after um, a couple of years or a few years of reporting from the festival and being the most committed journalist, they invited me to work for them. Mm -hmm. So initially, they wanted me to do press and PR, which I could do, and I I was quite good in it, but I it wasn't so exciting for me. So I came up with this idea that they start their own TV production. Um, and it was a perfect moment for them because um, at that point, they, they, it was like 2004 or five, um, uh, they became much more popular internationally than locally. So they were selling more tickets in UK or around Europe than they would in Serbia. Um, and that's exactly the point when the media started changing in Serbia. It, it started... Um, with a bit more, I mean, the, more yeah, welcoming it, and whatnot. It, no, it was more like it. It became more commercial because ah, okay. before that time, a lot of uh, TVs or radio stations or newspapers they somehow didn't depend on the sales or uh, or popularity or mm -hmm. commercials. They would depend on some other funds. So they they had the freedom to to present whatever content, and it it all started changing um, with the change of the system in the country. 
So there was less and, and less space for alternative culture. Um, and Exit had very, very close connections with uh, the actual national TV. Mm -hmm. So um, I told him, why don't you just use that and make music TV shows and present the music that you have um, at your festival so in the future you will have um, the audience for your festival because mm -hmm. if you don't play that music to uh, teenagers then nobody will basically and, like and, MTV and right? There, and there will be no uh, people buying the tickets for your festival because nobody will know about this music and that's how we started the TV thing and we did that for several years so yeah that was pretty much my connection and then we stopped because even these shows they somehow uh, became a bit too commercial for me and I was always very tough with because uh, I was always in, in uh, I was always in control of everything I was uh, the, the editor in chief of all my shows I was the producer I was the presenter I was the reporter I mean the only thing I didn't do was holding a camera or maybe doing wow. my makeup but so you I was, know it all I, yeah i was like super control freak and i didn't want to make any compromises i could okay. i could like make some tricks mm -hmm. um with you know oops yeah, <laughs> with making uh the show itself uh looking very commercial but then presenting the music and the content that's not commercial at all but at some point it became really hard so yeah we had to part ways <laughs> what were you presenting like i mean obviously i i've seen like the names for exit festival you would expect like a you know richie or magda and also like basically more bigger name acts right and then but i mean so when you do these shows would you do you because they don't you know these acts don't really do music videos so do you like what what gets presented then well, when I was uh, when I started, I I just played music videos, and that was the time when everyone had music videos okay. because it was the beginning of two thousand. So I could play Otekre and stuff like okay. that because they all had music videos. Um, um I played great. I mean, I also played Richie Hawkins videos and Nine Inch Nails and mm -hmm. Add to X and what I mean. I did it for years and I did it three times a week. So there's so oh, yeah. much, um, a lot of, you know, club music, um, a lot of weird stuff. Um, I would sometimes just play like noise videos that I would find of like Fod Finderai CD or whatever. Mm -hmm. There was also a really cool experimental festival going on in Belgrade called dispatch it went on for 10 years and they had really cool programming and i would interview these people and do reports from their shows and for exit i covered all i mm -hmm. i did interviews with the petro boys and i also did uh, interview with tony allen and also with uh, johnny rotten and wow. all, and also with all the small uh, like underground techno DJs or big commercial house guys like Eric Morello or mm -hmm. David Morales, Roger Sanchez. I I did you, all. You did of it these all. I did it all. Wow. I mean, I'm very sorry that I didn't do Wu Tang Clan uh, <laughs> because uh, my colleague really insisted on doing that interview. Why so didn't you do it? Because he wanted to do it. He, I I could see that he wants it more. <laughs> Fair enough. And I'm also sorry that I um, already stopped working as a reporter for the festival when ministry played <laughs> yeah you well funny you bring up ministry i i was in the states recently doing some studio work and they were playing in minneapolis and 
I I actually had a ticket to go, and I decided to go see my mom instead. You know, do the the nice uh, son thing. And uh, you were wrong. <laughs> well, that's what I thought, but I, I talked to a few people that went. They said the show was fucking terrible. So, really? Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, well, we all have off nights, but yeah, when they played Exit, that was already some years ago, um, and it was fantastic. It yeah. was it was great. Yeah, and I'm also. I mean, do you read uh, Al Jorgensen's book? No, I haven't either. I saw it on a friend's shelf, and I wrote it down. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna buy that this week, and then I I never did, and now I just keep talking about it. But yeah, I haven't read it. So yeah, I did it all. And then, I mean, at this point, when you decided uh, you've done it all, and then when did you decide to kind of put the journalism career aside, or at least start to wind it down? I had to stop because the um, with the TV thing, um, I, I the, the last TV show that I did was uh, mainly about Serbian music. Um, it was because the Serbian music scene had died completely, and um, some people had the idea to bring it back to life, and they gave me like a full responsibility to make this show happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was already there was so much pressure from the tv station that it has to be uh really like popular and um and then there was the sponsor sponsoring company that would also make a lot of pressure and i could fight for like a year or a year and a half and really like make some compromises but not too much and it was exciting and finally it was actually quite popular and people started watching um, TV again. Some people actually started watching TV again because they said, finally, we can hear some good music and we didn't even know that all these bands exist. And I would go so far. I would like really research and find these guys that have maybe like one song and they, they never even rehearsed in the studio. And I would just make them rehearse and record the whole album and tell them, okay, you know, when we put you on TV, you will get requests to play. And if you don't rehearse, it's just... <laughs> It's just not going to work. So I really like worked with all these guys. I put all my heart in it. And what uh, kind of music at this point? Um, also, also everything. everything. Yeah, it was like a lot of alternative rock stuff, indie stuff, also electronics and some hip hop. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for reporting, I would report from all sorts of events. Um, that was like the last year, but then I realized I'm like, I just can't give that much for one. I can't get involved in some band's careers and I didn't believe in all of them like hundred percent. Um, so that was the first thing that, that was uh, hurting me. The other thing was the pressure from the sponsor company and the TV station was so huge. They wanted to make it commercial and I was fighting and I was telling them, okay, like if you make it commercial, then we are doing the same thing like everyone else. So you will lose all, all these people who finally, um, I mean, we gained trust and it was a hard process um, to get these people back to believe that there is some music on TV. But if you start playing commercial music, first of all, I'm not the one who's going to do it. And, this, and second of all, um, they have it on every other TV or radio channel, so there is no reason to watch our show. Uh, um, so they didn't quite understand that, and I left. I left the show, and I realized, okay, that's it. Like there's, there even with exit in the end, um, they they have, of course, as as a huge music festival, they have a lot of sponsorships. 
So they were just like making these contracts and deals with sponsors. They would promise them stuff about TV shows that I couldn't quite uh, couldn't fulfill. Deliver yeah, I couldn't yeah. deliver. And it was also like, and, and then the responsibility was on me and I didn't, I, I wasn't the one who promised that content. Mm -hmm. So it was quite hard. Yeah, and that's, that's when I decided to stop. Uh, but I still had my radio show um, on Radio B92 and I played just electronic music there. Mm -hmm. And I did interviews uh, only with electronic uh, music artists for this show. And I did that for a couple of years until um, the radio got sold to some huge corporation and stopped existing. And I was also writing um, my weekly columns for NIN magazine. And NIN is something like let's say Spiegel here in Germany or Time magazine in the US. Okay. So it's quite serious. It's political. It's social. Uh, it talks about culture, but more like high culture. And they wanted to make it funky. So they invited me to write columns about nightlife and music, but with some sort of like social and political comment. Yeah. And then, yeah, I guess at some point my comments were quite uh, rough mm -hmm. and, in the meantime, the government uh, has changed in, in Serbia and the, the new prime minister um, turned out to be very oppressive to journalists and press in general. So I got fired for being too critical. <laughs> well, I mean, that <laughs> so sucks. I realized, but so I realized the whole, like, I can't do newspapers, I can't do radio, I can't do TV. And then I was like, okay, I have this thing, like I'm DJing every weekend and I'm traveling with this and I don't take myself seriously. Like, why wouldn't I just uh, take myself seriously and admit that I am a DJ mm -hmm. in the end? <laughs> just go full <laughs> and, and throttle just, on and it. And just go for it, yeah. And at like, what, what year was this when you decided like, all right, I'm, this is all I'm doing now or this is my main focus? Uh, I think it started 2011, uh, okay. and then and then in 2013, I think I had no other jobs. Um, okay. So yeah, right on. And um, I mean, since then, I've well, like I know. I mean, um, I mean, you're traveling every weekend. Like for example, this weekend, I think you said you're in Italy and in Cologne or something like that. It's always always a place now. Um, and we're going to go into a lot of that, but, you know, having that prior life as a journalist, do you ever see yourself going back to that world again, or are you just happy to, like, clean your hands off from all that? <laughs> um, actually, I at moments, I really miss that. Mm -hmm. I miss creating um, uh, uh, content, and um, I think there is... Like the whole, uh, I mean, every the whole media situation in Serbia also reflect what's happening worldwide. Serbia is mm -hmm. maybe just a little bit too extreme because we are a special case uh, anyways, politically and economically. But um, I think journalism is going just downwards, like mostly <laughs> everywhere. So I miss... Especially music journalism. Yeah, so <laughs> I miss creating some sort of content. And I think... Um, a lot of music deserves to be more popular and it could be possible and, and it could be done if you would do it in a smart way. Yeah. And I and I know that I I could do it, but it's just at this moment I it's just it would be such a hustle to go back to that. Um and there's less and less time. If you travel all the time there's um 
Well, I know there I, is not so much time left for additional actions. <laughs> when I started this podcast, I had a little bit more time on my hands. <laughs> well, it used to be like you could kind of. I mean, well, right now you have the luxury where like you're known mostly as a DJ, so you can just DJ. Like I'm known as a producer, so I have to work my ass off in the studio to get gigs. And uh, it used to be where I could kind of put out less stuff and still have a full schedule. And now I have to work a little harder. So I, I just don't have time to do the podcast as much. But, um, I mean, even doing this, let's say, I, I try to do it every other week, but it's uh, comes and goes. But it, it's it's a it's a big time commitment, you know? And, it, like, I think if you're doing a well-thought-out article or an essay or something, it, it could take even longer. I mean, yeah. I'm really particular about um, reading and writing, you know? So if I was to write um, a column or something, I think I would overanalyze it and rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it and yeah that, that's how i was when i first started and i never really wanted to to do this column because um i was uh, very skilled in doing uh, radio and tv shows but with writing i i'm i think i'm quite good in writing but it always takes so much time because i feel like it's a bigger responsibility and i always felt like okay whatever i write it's just gonna stay there like written in stone forever. And, you know, if it's printed in a magazine, maybe it will like... 100%. Like maybe it will just lay in someone's basement and then 100 years later, someone will take it out and read. And what if I'm like, what if I sound stupid? <laughs> totally. I mean... 100 years from now. So I had all these thoughts. I was being over critical and over analyzing. But then I got into a... But is it? Do you think? I don't and, know. And, and then I was like in a position where I have to do it once a week mm-hmm. and there was no time and like no space to so you get to, over it to, and then I, I I was always like chasing um deadlines and then if you have a deadline that you have to meet then it's you know then it's over when when you have a deadline so there's no more thinking about it yeah. <laughs> I mean you know I agree in all those senses and I but I, I don't think you're wrong in overanalyzing it to a degree because it's like a lot of people say that um that podcasts especially people that do it weekly and stuff they get to it gets to be a really intimate thing because you hear this person talking the whole time. Like if you did your own podcast, let's say weekly, they would really start to feel like they know you because they listen to you for an hour or two each week and your voice and everything. But the thing is, is they'll listen to it once and throw it away. But like with an article or a book, like those, (laughs) those words can only be interpreted. Well, they should be interpreted. Sometimes people take shit out of context and things get crazy, but that's another topic. (laughs) I mean, so yeah, it's I don't know I, I I'm just too particular about actual yeah. written words. So. Yeah, me too, me too. But you know, you put down the, the pen and the camera and all that shit, and now you're DJing full time. Um, I mean, you kind of started off with Abe DK, which is a great guy to like a mentor to really get yeah. into this shit with. I've learned so much from him. Yeah. so so much oh, production wise. He was also like a um like a life coach for me as well because I, I mean it. he's he's older and he he was around for a long time and he told me all these stories about the beginnings of the scene and whatever was happening in New York in the 80s and the mm. 90s and all the clubs that he knew and that he played and stuff that I wouldn't maybe um get to know so well if 
well, of course, Serbia was a bit disconnected always, mm-hmm. but um, he gave me really like the firsthand um, history. Yeah, that's <laughs> of, awesome. Of the U.S. scene. So now I know a lot about that. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, not the entire reason, but that's one of the reasons I also started this podcast to get people. Um, well, Abe hasn't been on the show, but, you know, like we've had Adam Max and others that are kind of old schoolers that you know <laughs> yeah adam x is one of abe's friends and uh i met him when um we had to stay in this uh, apartment together back then 2006 mm-hmm. and um yeah then adam was also telling me th- that's before he really wanted to play burkhine and that's before he 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 had this revival mm-hmm. in berlin and with this whole uh, uh, traversable, traversable wormhole, wormhole yeah. project um so yeah that was also fun and then adam also introduced me to some people in berlin actually the people from hardwax and mm-hmm. and all this crew so it was really uh, very a interesting cool time. yeah cool times and abe always used to say <laughs> Every time when I would get nervous before the show or whatever in life, and he would say, you know, remember, these are the good old times. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good way to put and, it. And now, and, and now I realize he was right. Those were the good old times. Now everything's <laughs> shit or what? No, everything, no, no, everything is also nice. But uh, he just wanted to say, you know, yeah, yeah. In, in perspective, like in the future, you will look at this as the good old times. Totally, <laughs> totally. I mean, I have to say, fortunately, that um, with time, the gigs just kept increasing in quality. I didn't feel like, oh, the gigs are always better back then. I mean, uh, I don't think I, I didn't start playing out to like, even though I started in 98, I wasn't doing like actual raves or anything until probably 2000, 2001. It was always house parties and shit. And the, the quality has always improved, whether it was sound or attendance or something fortunately but then again you know you talk to these other people who've been around since the early 90s and they're like whatever like you don't even know (laughs) you know uh and it's crazy i mean it was it was a totally different time and i think i mean i would like to to talk to abe about it at some point because it's there's just so much crazy shit going on that was not only interesting but it was it was even more lawless back then like we're in a time of like there's a big social change in not only in the world but in our music scene and stuff and it's like Back then, you could get away with even more. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, in in the 90s, Serbia was also quite wild because the country was isolated and there were, like, no laws at all. It was complete anarchy. And we did have have a DJ scene there. We did have raves. And I started going out quite early when I was already 13 and 14 with my older uncle. So I remember the first raves in Serbia, for example, which was in 94, 95. Um, and I remember the clubs back then, and it was really wild. And then I do you I remember who was playing at all or anything? Yeah, I I do. I mean, we didn't have many international guests coming mm-hmm. because the country was closed, so people couldn't just um, come and play. And um, we were really like the worst news in the news, so a lot of people were also afraid to come. Uh, DJ Hell played. I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, Moby played be- before he became super well known. Really? Oh, before yeah. play and all that. Yeah. yeah, Moby was there in the nineties. I mean, he was already massive in yeah, the nineties, but, but yeah, but still, like, in, like to he come wasn't to on Serbia every, yeah. and like to play in ninety whatever the year was six, seven, eight. Laurent Garnier came. That was the legendary party. It's really like a proper legend that that's being um, 
uh, told from you know one generation to another and since this day every time he comes to play in Serbia it's always sold out it's always crazy I mean he's a fantastic DJ uh, still um, but I think it's a it's just due to this one party that he played in 95 <laughs> that that people are like still come I think everyone who went to that party 95 is still coming if they live in Serbia is still coming every time Laurent is playing there you know I, I Laurent's one of those guys though because there's the same thing in Minneapolis he played a party called electric disco I wasn't there but everybody still goes on about it um I mean he's got that vibe but I, I think that's kind of how it goes with parties in general like if you go to play a city or a country for your first time and you just kill it and it's a great party, <laughs> I, you're like your career's more or less made there. As long as you keep coming back and delivering, like you're always going to have that reception. And then if you have like your first time is really just a shit party, it makes it that much harder to to Come develop back. a career. Like for me in New York, like now I have a really good thing. I get to play there a lot and I have dedicated fans and stuff. But like. I probably played there for years and just like, you know, I don't want to say that it was the worst parties because they were good people. Like it just couldn't get people to turn out. And then you're just like, fucking whatever. I'm just going to play and get out of here. And then if after a while you finally build it up and then there's other cities where you just kill it from the right, from the get go. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's uh, something like that happened to me with Holland. Um, I played at the school uh, Mm -hmm. last year and it was my first gig in Amsterdam um before that i just played the uh, red light radio and the party went so well that i got invited again and then again to other places around holland and then all the festivals and everything mm-hmm. and every time i see the same faces so people are coming to see me and somehow because of this um warm reception or this good connection that we have, all my sets there are really, really good. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I mean, and, and that's what it comes down to. Like, it's really important, like, as a promoter or a DJ, whoever, like, to make that first time really count. Otherwise, it's a wash. Yeah. And there's, like, there's some places now where I still, like, for example, I haven't been to Tbilisi. Uh, to Tbilisi mm-hmm. And I'm just, like, holding out for, like, the right, I've had offers, but, like, holding out for the right time, the right lineup. Because it's, like, I feel like if you go there and it's just whatever... Eh, you know, then you you have to do more work for it. But I at these days I've just I've played enough, and I'm 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 comfortable with holding out for the right thing as well. Well, you know, Tbilisi is such an amazing city and such a great place that you should take whatever offer because it's worth going yeah. there. <laughs> and people are generally very very excited about parties and music, and they know their shit. So I I don't believe that you will have a bad party experience there. Right on. And for, mo- well, mostly the Americans, because we're more ignorant. That's in Georgia. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you've been you've been playing quite a lot. You've joined a uh, dystopian agency a while ago now already. Two, um, actually, like, it's exactly three, two, years two years ago. Yeah. yeah. And uh, for those who don't know, you kind of like ride in the, the line between house and techno, would you say? That's true. Yeah. yeah. And um, I mean... Nowadays, is there something that you kind of that's getting you going more at the moment musically, like mm. maybe certain names or, or labels or like a certain movement? Uh, I never, I never really um, had. Um, I never really had that. I could never really say, okay, this is the sound that I'm really digging at mm-hmm. this moment, or like this label. 
is killing it because I listen to all sorts of music and um, mm -hmm. I also play, like I really like when I have a chance to play a smaller party and a longer set so I can play diverse uh, styles. I can't say that. I, yeah. I, I can't, I really like, can't, I can't say I mean, like, okay, this label is my favorite. Well, I've, I've learned my lesson on the show to, cause I'll be like, Oh, what, what's your favorite artist right now? And they'd be like, uh, they don't, cause it's hard. It's, it's like telling a comedian, like say something funny. They'll never do it because you put them on the spot. But I mean, like for me right now, I can say I'm not, I'm not really finding a lot of like, uh, let's say for example, like the big room techno that's really getting me excited. It's either like too that's, cheesy or whatever. That's true. Something and, something happened with techno. I mean, I used to be a house DJ for years, and then I would say around 2012, actually when Drugstore Club opened in Belgrade and they booked me to play there, and the venue was so dark and so industrial, I had the feeling, okay, I I can't really play my house records here, so. I played whatever the harder stuff I had and, and the techno I had, and I enjoyed it so much. And then I started following like proper techno a bit more. And it was such an exciting time for techno. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of like became a techno DJ overnight. And it was exciting mm -hmm. for me to play that because at that point, house was not very exciting. It and isn't for, right now either. But and for, and for several years, there was so much... Like there was so many great releases coming out, and right now I don't feel that. <laughs> I don't see that. It's yeah. so it's so hard to find some new music that would be exciting. Well, I think I mean the average is quite high, which makes it a problem. Because yeah, even exactly. Though, even yeah. though it's technically pretty good, um, it's you know it's the same as something else. You know what I mean? So there's not so many standout tracks, and uh, like. I find myself lately playing like really in this like sort of in the zone, this tunnel vision tripped out, mm. like let's get deeper and crazier. And uh, apparently the kids are more into, I think like the harder stuff these days. And actually I'm, I really like, I would say things more along the lines of like Aphex Twin or Surgeon when it comes to mm. harder techno, but I, I can't get into this like just machine guns going off for two yeah, hours me, type me neither. vibe. And that's, it's either I've, I've never been that kind of a teacher. Uh, yeah. Um I'm 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 playing more and more acid again. I used to play that when I started. Um I was a uh, and also with Abe, I mean most of the stuff that we did was quite as mm. acidic acidic. <laughs> um and now uh, now that um excites me a lot cuz I realized um yeah, there's a lot of new acid releases and the old ones I haven't played in a long time. And whenever I play it, I'm just happy. It just makes me instantly happy. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, um, you know, when it comes to acid, there's like you just said, there's a lot of acid records coming out right now. But it's it's like an acid line. And then like I would just say like the Berghain kick drum, you know, fucking tons of reverb on it and stuff. And I mean, do you are you feeling those kind of newer acid tracks or do you find yourself going back towards like the more Chicago style rougher vibes? Um, Actually, both. But I like it more. I like the acid tracks that are actually on on the on the border with trance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's that's what I prefer. Are you playing a lot of trance records right now? Or uh, no? Well, have you heard the new Rod album? Yeah, yeah. So a few. There's some very arpeggiated uh, elements. Yeah. Let's not say trance, but you know, it definitely. But almost. <laughs> yeah. Um. 
Yeah, that and of course whatever Milton Bradley is doing is Alien Rain. I really love all yeah. his releases. But also old stuff like mm-hmm. a, a lot of Richie Houghton or Plastic Man tracks with the 303 totally. which is more like deep or minimal um a lot of hard floor tracks mm-hmm. yeah there was this one acid record that came out earlier this year by virgo 4 i can't remember it was on shy wax or one of those labels mm-hmm. and i really thought like this is one of those kind of uh like deep house acid house crossover yeah, tracks that was I, gonna work. i know exactly what you're talking about and it's, a, it's a beautiful release yeah i think it's great but i haven't heard anybody play it and then again i'm not really going out anymore so maybe maybe they I are think, but i think i played one of the tracks from that release um in my was it lobster theremin podcast or one one of the mixes mm-hmm. i recorded yeah i mean i don't know i I'm not going to look it up right now because it'll be like 10 seconds of Yeah, never silence. mind, never but, mind. But, <laughs> uh, you know, shit like that. I mean, th- there's still cool acid stuff coming out, but a lot of it lately I feel like is um, just like only the big kick drum and, and a little bit of a weird, ac- a very obvious acid line, you know what I mean? But for me... Uh, but to make a really good and um, original acid line is actually very, very hard. Exactly. Especially if you have a real 303. Yeah. They're really hard to program. But I mean, even if you don't, even if you use plugins, it's very hard to make um, like a combination of notes that you've never heard before. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean it's, I mean when it comes down to it, the three hundred three is like the equivalent of a guitar. Like you've heard all of it a yeah. million times. It's just whether you're in the mood for that particular uh, scale that day or not. You know? Yeah, I think it's more what would be um, exciting is to put it in a different context to change the environment that a 303 is um, used. Mm-hmm. So, as you said, maybe not really bang it or not even put it in a house context, maybe mm-hmm. something else. Yeah, maybe R&B track even or something. <laughs> Who knows? But, um, I mean, so you've been DJing full-time since 2013, roughly, you said? Is that right? Uh, 15... Uh, well, like when you didn't have the job anymore. Yeah, when I didn't have the job anymore. Yeah, but yeah. Let's, let's put it that way. And then, I mean, it's it's a lot like, you know, a couple times a weekend or every weekend. And, uh, of course, it can still be fun. But, you know, every DJ, I think, gets to a point where they sort of run out of things to say or they got to keep themselves interested or challenge themselves. Is there some way that you're really approaching it right now? To be honest, actually, I was DJing every weekend or almost every weekend since... Since you started? Yeah, since I okay. started. Um, there were some down periods, but uh, oh, I mean, of course, in the last two years, I'm DJing more than ever. Um, what was the question again? Well, I mean, like, even, you know, if you're playing every weekend and even if it is good, you kind of get used to these records that are easy to fall back on or something like that. Is there, is there something that you're trying to do to push yourself to keep it interesting or you're like, I think I could take DJing in this direction or, you know what I mean? Yeah, it really depends on the it depends on a lot of things like how tired or not tired I or I feel mm-hmm. or how much energy is there in the room and what kind of sound system is there and sometimes like depending on on all these factors sometimes you just can't deliver like super original uh DJ set. I mean what I do when I organize my folders uh for for DJing, I keep everything in absolute mess. 
um, so disaster too. So I don't have a folder with acid, and then a folder with techno, and then a folder with house, and then a folder with Chicago, and then a folder with vocal samples. I don't have that. Mm-hmm. Everything is a total mess, which actually makes me um, some make some not really random choices, but I bump into tracks that, that maybe I gone w- for. yeah I maybe wouldn't remember. Um, and I think and I do it on purpose I mean sometimes I'm just uh, annoyed with all this mess because on the other uh, on the other hand I'm a I'm a bit of a obsessive compulsive character but then I remind myself to just keep it that way because so many times it happened that I would just find some tracks and some music that I normally wouldn't if it was all well organized Mm -hmm. Um, so that's um, that's my trick I mean what I miss is always time. Mm-hmm. Uh, since I started traveling so much, it's always this time to, you know, contemplate a bit more about your sets and to research a bit more and mm-hmm. to just envision what you're going to do. To really deliver, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm really, I don't know, I meditate. So mm-hmm. I always meditate before my sets and I somehow try to envision what's going to happen and then um, it's it's good. It also reflects um, the music that I play. But sometimes, I mean, as always, there are, I can't deliver uh, every, it's not like, I can't say that I deliver 100% every time or 200% Nobody does. every time. Like there are, there are times when just... Yeah, I just don't feel like it or like something doesn't work or there's something that kills my buzz. And then there are parties when records and and, and tracks are just like coming out of nowhere and mixing themselves yeah, and, and, every, yeah, and everything is in super flow and I go back home and I'm thinking I'm the greatest DJ in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Those Sundays when you come home are good. Then there's the other ones where you have two bad gigs in a row and you're like, shit, I should just wrap it up now. I'm done. <laughs> Yeah, um, as um, someone uh, uh, recently told me, what form of existence is this really? (laughs) That's the question that you ask yourself after a bad gig. (laughs) It's sort of a sadist existence, yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, I was actually talking to somebody about this the other night at dinner. It's like you can have uh, like a really great night at a gig, like you feel the energy, like it's fantastic, it's amazing. Then you're walking out of the venue and you overhear one person like, ah, oh, they were boring, blah, blah, blah. And then like, that's all it takes to just ruin the night right there. Even though you know that it doesn't matter that one person, fuck them, whatever, you know, but that's all it takes sometimes. And, uh, but then you, you keep going like it, it sounds super cheesy, but you know, they say it's, it's kind of like a drug. You're like, oh, I need more. you like, it's good to have, it feels good when you really, you know, you feel like you've done, you've, you pulled it off. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. I, I realized maybe it's uh, all this uh, journalist experience where you always uh, have to race with time and there's so many deadlines and especially with live program, it's kind of stressful. But I realized, or maybe just growing up in Serbia in general, uh, but I realized I work so well under stress and the the worse the circumstances are for the party, the better my set gets. Um, like, for example, just recently I um, played in Colombia. And it was such a crazy 
travel. We traveled for 14 hours. South America uh, travels nuts. It, and, and then the regular flight was canceled. So they got us on this like charter jet and we all thought we we're going to crash because there was too much equipment inside. And it was it was so stressful. And then the driver was driving like crazy for two hours. And and basically, I just had to jump out of the bus and go on stage and perform in front of 6,000 people. And I really thought I'm not like I'm not sure if what's going to happen. I mean, okay, I will play, but I'm, I really have no idea mm-hmm. what this set is going to sound like. And it was a fantastic set. Awesome. <laughs> and I was like, wow. And I was like mixing like all like all the time, like four or three tracks at the same time, sampling, like doing some crazy stuff, looping. And I'm like, wow, like how like how is this happening? You know, <laughs> really, I was like very active and really feeling it, and like playing around with some um, with some tracks that I normally wouldn't f- fool around with because it's a bit like risky. And everything worked out perfectly. And I was like, wow, okay, maybe it's just this crazy thing that when you're under stress or super tired or whatever, then your mind is somewhere else. And Mm -hmm. then your intuition and your body and whatever, your spirit does does the work. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And especially with jet lag. I don't know if you had jet lag at the point when you were on that gig, but... There's, you know, I've had gigs where like, actually the last time, did did I see you since India or no? No. <laughs> okay. So it's been almost a year. Last time I saw Tiana was in India and I had it come off of a 27 hour travel. I got to the hotel that they had put us all up at. And an hour later I had to go to play the gig and I was like so out of it. I'd played two gigs already because I was doing four gigs in five days. One of them being in India, the rest were in Europe. And yeah, I mean, it's just like, you're so... The traffic there is fucking bananas to begin with. <laughs> I couldn't believe what was going to happen. But, uh, yeah, so you finally get there, like, in a moment's notice. And even though it might not even be the right setup wherever you end up at or something, you just kind of make it work. And it really – there's a certain vibe going on there, you know, that you can't get, like, if you have to have a drink to loosen up or something. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's cool, though. Yeah, wow, I can't believe that's – that long already, yeah, for me that ago. for me that in the experience was also quite intense it was the last one um on my asian tour i went to tokyo and then i went to seoul for a weekend and then i went back to tokyo and then i went to kuala lumpur then singapore and then i arrived to india that's right i remember that and you yeah. almost got stuck there right or something or I can't there remember. Was something wrong. <laughs> there was but, something. And then and then also the traffic. I mean, I arrived to Goa. The driver picked me up and I was like, what the hell is going on? I Where think, am I? How did I end up here? And it was the same. It was like dark in this. Wasn't pit. it like three hours ago, 12 kilometers or something like that? I don't remember what it was, but it, it took me three hours to get from the airport to the hotel. Um, we were in Goa, if anybody knows. I don't know. I think it was like two hours for for me. But it was I get car sick, so it was it, terrible. It was, just, it was just like super, super crazy traffic. And the same thing. I arrived and I had to go play after, yeah. after one hour. But it was a cool space, good vibes. Like, yeah, I was and then, really happy and then, to be there. Yeah, me too. And then I woke up. I went out of the hotel uh, to take a walk around the village and I saw all these cows laying down and I in the saying, street yeah. and shit yeah and I was like how did I end up here like what's going on with my life <laughs> it's it's pretty bizarre yeah. you know <laughs> I mean when when I was there it was a 
you know, definitely from the state side thing, you always hear about like India and Goa and all the side trains and stuff, which was there definitely. But I mean, for me, did you uh, finish at sunset too, or was there a DJ after you? Or uh, there was a DJ. There okay. was, uh, yeah, there was so, one more DJ. After yeah, me. I, I started. I, I did the whole techno thing and ended at sunrise with like a bunch of house and shit, like in Goa, which is a pretty romanticized idea coming from the states. And uh, yeah, then you you go back into the little village or whatever, and there, like you said, there's cows and goats <laughs> everywhere, and there's the actual side fucking show with the side trance and whatnot. And you're like, man, this is so cliche but awesome at the same time. I mean, yeah. it was really bizarre. I'm actually going back to India next month, and yeah. this time I have three gigs there. Nice. And after that experience, it was um, I, I was just very tired. I was exhausted from this whole tour, and I wasn't really sure if I liked it. And the whole cultural shock was a bit too too extreme for me. But then when I got offered to 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 go again, I said, <laughs> I said, of course, I'm yeah. going. <laughs> got to do it man i mean that's half the fun is the travel right um but the, the thing is is like so oh, i just lost my train of thought i'm the only one drinking here so you're I'm a little buzzed i'm getting there <laughs> i'm putting a good good dent in the bottle but um so the thing is you know we haven't met since then and but i remember the last time we were talking there you said that you were having a lot of trouble with visas and passports yeah. Because you're Serbian. Yes. So <laughs> let's talk about that because that's kind of a, that's a lot of, there's a lot of people dealing with something that you never hear about really in, in the media. Yeah, that's true. Well, um, first of all, as a Serbian, um, I was not able to travel at all outside of my country as a teenager, for example. Um, and then since the beginning of 2000s until um 2010 or like late 2009 we would need visas for all european countries and us of course mm, and these visas were quite uh difficult to get and there was a lot of power games in these embassies and with this whole process it was quite actually humiliating to be like a normal serbian civilian trying to get anywhere so it was uh, a very stressful experience for everyone. Um, I mean, people, the country is quite poor still. And back then it was even more poor. So not so many people wanted to travel or were able to. Um, so I'm kind of used to this. But then things have changed or we thought that they, they've changed. And now we're allowed to travel to Europe without a visa um getting a, a US visa is mm, fairly easy they usually give it to everyone and you get it for 3 years and then the next time you apply they but it's a lot of information they, right they extend it for it's just the application process is quite funny like they ask all these funny questions in the application like um have you ever been involved in terror i mean even if anyone was would they really Why would they say uh, but then recently, I I had to I had really bad experiences with UK visa, and actually getting a UK visa is a much bigger problem than uh, and more complicated than and more expensive than than getting a US visa. So, really? 
Yeah, wow. it's, it's way worse. Because what's the states now, like 3,000, 3,500, something like that? Now you're talking about um, you're talking about a work visa, but we need a U.S. visa even for a tourist visa. Oh, like an so, ESTA or what like they call no, it. Like normal uh, tourist visits. So, I think that's so like 10 bucks, right? Something that's, like that? No, for us it's around $100. Okay. But at least, um, at least you get it for three years and you can go back and forth. Oh, okay. Um, and for example, for UK visa, the, tour, the tourist visa is around 100 pounds. And you can only go. It depends on what they allow you. Um, but you either can go once or a few times in the six months period, and then yeah. after six months you need to apply again. And working visa for us um, entertainers is um, two hundred or two hundred and fifty euros. Really? And then the problem with UK visa is that they um, are, take your passport. And uh, hold it for three to four weeks. Holy shit! Uh, and in Serbia, it's not allowed to have uh, double two passwords. Two double passwords. So basically, you can't really travel. And then they have this uh, express service, meaning um, you pay additional two hundred and eighty euros, and um, they promise to send back the passport from three to five working days. But it never really works out like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, first of all, I. Um, I I had the wrong visa one time because like the whole process is really complicated. Like you need a lawyer to work on that. Even for just for st- like one gig, yeah, for example? yeah, for one gig. Like for me, even although I think my English is quite good and I I read everything and I can talk, like this the explanation of the whole visa process was uh, not not so easy for me so i couldn't quite british english is different too it's not it's not about british english it's this uh, um it's more of this um formal it, it's Whatever. no it's more like this they how do they call it they call it um it's not even a formal english it's more like um the the language that they use for laws okay, and Okay, so rules. it's like legal it's English. Legal English, something yeah. Like yeah, that. So, yeah. Yeah, the legal English is quite quite um quite hard. So anyways, I had w- uh, one type of visa which I thought allows me to um go in the country and perform uh because it does say um performers are allowed to enter the country and perform, but then it says you're not allowed to take any work paid or un Mm-hmm. paid so i thought like okay i'm a performer i can go and perform but it turned out that anything i do as a performer there is considered as work so i wasn't allowed to work so anyways i came with this visa thinking i have the right visa they said no you don't they kept me in this custody for 10 11 hours uh so i wow. <laughs> i was going through the whole british uh, uh sitcom <laughs> situation it was quite uh, were they being assholes it, it, or were they just being difficult they were because the states would be assholes you'd be like oh my god i'm locked in here with you guys i mean you know so for someone that's being detained that hasn't like was it just kind of like difficult and of course you stress because you don't know if you're getting in or not but like were they making it extra difficult or was it just they were were, they they were just taking a lot of time so i waited for the interview for like five hours and then we did the interview which was two hours long Um, and then they it took some time for them to decide on my case and then they wanted me to stay overnight because the rule is they have to get me back um, to the same destination and in the with the same airline company that I arrived with 
Um, and that was Air Serbia, and Air Serbia flies from London only once a day, so I would have to wait for... And then, yeah, anyways, we somehow managed to, like, my agent and, and me, we insisted that I buy myself my own, like, way back, and, mm -hmm. and somehow I got back earlier. But the thing is, like, they told me, okay, so this happens a lot of a lot of times because the whole the whole system is quite um complicated and mm -hmm. um like it's, it's it's just so weird the way everything is organized you can't really get a real information about what you need to do or how you need to apply and what kind of visa do you need unless you ask a lawyer and who would have thought like beforehand that you actually need a lawyer for visa um And so they told me, okay, this happens all the time. People apply for wrong visas. For mm -hmm. example, with me, there was this guy who came to UK to get married, but he didn't have a marriage visa. He had something else, although they were already registered for marriage. So he was supposed to change his visa, which he didn't know, of course. Nobody mm -hmm. tells you that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyways, they told me, okay, this happens all the time, but you can apply for a proper working visa and just come back next week or wherever or whenever your visa gets approved. But mm -hmm. then my visa never got approved because um, they, I would get the answer from whatever the the the, the person. You, you actually have like you get a personal answer uh, when they don't give you the visa, and they would explain, okay, you tried to enter the country once uh, with your wrong visa, and now we have serious doubts that you would. Um, come to England and take illegal work and stay there and then I would apply again and I would give them proof that I need to be somewhere else the next day and then the next day and that I have my own company in Belgrade for the ten, for 10 years mm -hmm. and like all my interviews for The Guardian, New York Times, blah, blah, like the proof that I'm a legit normal person that I like if I stayed in Belgrade for over 30 years, why would I like move mm -hmm. to London now? Mm -hmm. um, and then they would again deny the visa and then I got like really deep in in trying to figure out how things work and what I found out is I mean first of all the laws are written in such a confusing way that they they can like they can do whatever like they're allowed to 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 deny visa for any given reason and for them it's just more money because every visa is like 500 euros so um the the more you apply the more money the government gets um on the other hand there is some sort of uh more or less like open discrimination towards uh eastern european countries because um uh, all the visas are being processed all the 20 something eastern european countries mm -hmm. are all sending um visa applications to poland to warsaw And 70% of all visa applications in Poland are being denied. Really? Wh whether is it to a wow. tourist visa or a work visa or a family reunion visa, settlement visas. Um, and I, I got like a very... And that's across the border. That's for the UK. Yeah, that's for the UK. So... And I got a very like, so a, a friend of mine who's an architect was applying with another uh, colleague of hers. They're both Serbian. They both live in Zurich. They both work for the same studio um, as architects and they both had mm. to go to UK for a conference. So one of them applied from Zurich and the other one applied from Belgrade. And the one from Zurich got the visa and the other one who applied from Belgrade didn't get the visa. And they had the same job, the same wow. CV, like everything the same. So apparently that's um, that's what's happening, but that's just part of like 
one big story about borders that are not so open anymore. For example, I mean, I've been coming to Germany and to Berlin for the last 12 years already. And just recently, just a couple of months ago, the first time ever I got stopped at the border and the border guy started counting my stamps and how many wow. days I spent in Germany and what I do here, blah, blah. And then the next month uh, they were asking me, how much money I have with me to show them my credit card and how much I'm allowed to spend and uh, the invitation letter from the friend I'm staying with and all these that never happened before. Wow. So, and it's just like the way you're being treated. I mean, at, 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 at moments I would just think, I mean, okay, this is just because I'm having a Serbian passport. Imagine if I wasn't white, like what would happen then? Like it would be totally. even well, it, it would be even worse because I see it happening totally. at borders. And yeah, that's um, even like the one time I got my working visa for UK, I told that story to um, Marina Rubinstein just a couple of hours ago. <laughs> when I got the visa, I came there and every time you have this work visa, I, ha I guess you you have to go through the same process. Yeah. You, they are doing some additional checks at the passport control. So I had, I had to wait for them to do the additional checks. And there was an American girl. She's a musician as well. So mm -hmm. she had the same type of visa. And with her, the way they, the, she was being treated was like, oh, sorry, we have to do additional checks. You know, it's the normal procedure. So just please be patient and wait here, blah, blah, blah. And for me, they... They looked at me so suspiciously and they were not being so polite. They were just judging you totally. Yeah, yeah, totally, because I have a Serbian passport. And then they came back with both of our passports and she got, again, like a very polite treatment. We're really sorry that you had to wait, but, you know, we have to do it every time with working visa. Welcome to UK. And then for me, they were like, okay, you're admitted and please make sure to leave the country. Wow, crazy. <laughs> So yeah, that's that. That's the kind of, and it reflects everything, you know. Okay, I'm I'm like a grown up, uh, sensible person, and I'm educated, and I'm aware of all the rules and laws, and I know how this happened, and I know the history of my country, and I know the, the international image of my country as well. I can understand things, and I can somehow rationalize it, and. Um, live with it but then I'm thinking about you know youngsters or young people who just want to be as free to move around as any uh, anyone totally. else in Europe because Serbia is still geographically in the middle of Europe actually uh, um, and then if they get this um, hostile treatment I mean the the feelings uh, that they can develop towards uh, this world are just uh, negative, and then that leads to more hatred and to more nationalism and blah blah blah. So of course. yeah, not good. Have Have you been to Canada? No. Okay, that's a different story. <laughs> I went there last time, and uh, when you walk, when, especially when you go to Montreal. And it's funny because I saw a Facebook status from another friend the other day. He's like, it's the longest hour and a half of your life because you start at like kind of the top of the stairs and work your way through passport control. I went into play stereo and I don't know why, but there was there was basically one sort of lane or line that was mostly empty. And I decided I needed to be in it. I can't remember if I thought like – I wasn't trying to skip the line. I mean I was, but I wasn't like – it was either like a priority line or a, some sort of line where I'm like, oh, this sounds like where I should be. So, of course, I did it and this guy comes up. He's like, show me your stuff. You know, he's like, he's like, ah, 
Okay, yeah. So uh, here's the deal. Okay, uh, you're gonna have to next time. I'm gonna let you slide this time, but next time you got to go to that line over there. You got to stand with everybody. This time, yeah, you can go up next in a couple minutes. It's like basically he let me cut through everything. <laughs> I got through right away, and then they said because uh, for Americans, especially artists now, it's really easy to get into Canada. They're like, oh, okay, so you got to have a seat over here, but. Uh, um, gee, I'm really sorry. You're going to have to wait for a little bit, and we're going to come get you, and then we'll get you out of here. And then I waited for like 20 minutes, which is nothing when you do yeah. this a lot. And they apologized up and down for that 20 minutes, like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, for me, it was funny. You know what I mean? Cause it was yeah, Marina, so just, Marina just told me she was in Japan for the first time. And um, she had something like some That's sort of Doctor Rubenstein. For, yeah, yeah, yeah. Doctor Rubenstein. Uh, she had some sort of a confirmation letter, uh, and she didn't realize that it wasn't a visa because somewhere on this letter it looked very formal with mm-hmm. all the stamps and watermarks and everything. But somewhere in the small letters, it was written like this is not a visa with this you need to go to the embassy and get your working visa um, so she went there without a working visa saying that she is working and she's performing as a DJ and she showed this letter to the passport control guy and they said well this is not a visa and this doesn't allow you to enter the country and work and she was got really scared thinking she needs to go back home but they actually gave her a visa on the spot like That's the awesome. working visa so that's just a um, question of, I guess. Sometimes mentality. it depends how nice you are. <laughs> yeah. You know, and she's a nice girl. So I don't think it's, I mean, I'm not a bad person. <laughs> well, I'm also, but I think it's just the Japanese people who are maybe a bit more open and friendly and they're not afraid. I mean, even like when I was held at the, at the airport, the security guy. Because I was appointed a security guard every time I would need to go anywhere to mm-hmm. the toilet or to go out to make this one phone call mm-hmm. or whatever. And then the security guy was giving me lessons and explaining like, okay, you just try to take a job from a British DJ who would pay his taxes here and you try to work illegally and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, I get it. But <laughs> I did, you. <laughs> like, I didn't, I didn't, I thought I had the right visa. I just, I would... If I wanted to cheat, I would just say that I'm coming for whatever museum visit and I wouldn't even say that I'm working. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's a bit of a different approach, I guess, a different mentality. I'm, I have to say all of this happened after they voted Brexit, so maybe it has to do with something. Right on. Yeah, I, uh, wish, I, w- I wish, on the other hand, I really wish I would go to UK and I'm working on... I'm working on that now because the last time I just gave up on the whole visa process because they kept my passport for more than three weeks and I had to travel to other places. But I, um, the funny thing is, there was a lot of requests coming from UK, and that was the f- and that and that was the first country that was there where people would put me would put me as a headliner of the party, and I was, I felt so sorry. I just never showed up. I mean. People don't show up for various reasons because they are hungover or still wasted at an after party. Mm-hmm. And I'm always like super disciplined and super straight and always like, you know, somehow I'm a nerd in, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And I felt just so bad for not showing up. I felt like, I mean, this, this system actually makes you feel like you're guilty for something. 
And I, I started feeling this kind of guilt, like, okay, maybe I, I actually did something wrong. Maybe I don't deserve to be there. All these crazy thoughts. I just felt bad. <laughs> well, you look pretty guilty to me. I don't know. <laughs> no, but um, so that being said, uh, do you ever, you're in Serbia now. Do you see yourself moving anywhere else, be it Berlin? Obviously not London right now, but uh, <laughs> elsewhere? Or are you going to stay, yeah, stay in to Serbia? London. Stay yeah. forever. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's a process going on. Uh, I might move to Berlin. I mean, um, you're open to it rather, right? Yeah. And I already have a place here, so I'll be spending more time here, but even to move here, I need visa. So that's, uh, another process. It's a whole other, whole other podcast. (laughs) I mean, generally this whole, uh, issue is, is a whole other podcast because there's other aspects of coming from, places like serbia not only the travel thing it's like everything you know the the bank transfers are just super expensive so you always get like less money for for your shows and then like if you order every anything online you have to pay import taxes so every time you want to buy records you just can't and then we don't have record shops so and then the equipment you buy is like 70% more expensive than anywhere else in the world. So you can't really buy equipment. And that's why the scene is not developing. And it's like there's no synthesizers. There's like for everything is just more and more complicated. Sounds like a drag. Yeah, it's just very complicated to be um, a DJ or a musician in Serbia. And then, of course, there is no infrastructure. There is no system that supports musicians. So there is not a lot of... Um, motivating factors for people to get involved in this it's a bummer but hopefully do you you see that change anytime soon or not really i see a lot of enthusiasm and i see a lot of people uh there is more djs and more more producers than ever and i think we have to uh thank internet and uh, uh, the revolution of um, music technology for that because Mm -hmm. it just became affordable and available um and possible for even people in Serbia <laughs> mm-hmm. and um and that's good and there's a lot of talent and I'm and I'm really very supportive of most of my colleagues in Serbia whatever genre they're playing because they just kick asses and one of the good things about being a bit isolated is that you don't get um these mainstream influences so people develop their own styles and their own approach to to things and awesome. that, that that's great that's that's the good side of it definitely so it's very it's like very genuine and also the way that people are approaching parties and promoting parties is there's quite a lot of uh, good things going on great clubs great promoters great lineups great DJs and a lot of enthusiasm so um I think somehow, some hope for uh, it. yeah. I mean, somehow, even 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 if it's so complicated, and even if it if it's much harder than uh, other places uh, in the world, or at least like uh, Europe, like not the rest of the world, like not the whole world. Um, mm, I think it's still somehow good. Things are happening. It's very dynamic. Awesome. And it's genuine. You don't hear yeah. the, the same sound as you hear everywhere. Which is a nice thing, you know. That's, that's the best thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, even in Berlin, a lot of it is kind of derivatives of like Chicago or Detroit, for example. You know what I mean? So that's cool. Um, but like looking towards the future, more like on a personal level, is there? Do you have any sort of 
projects coming up that you're looking forward to? Are you are you are you going to do more studio work or tell us you know about that I, kind of stuff? Uh, um, yeah, I was actually producing just for myself and uh, trying to get back to to that um, after many years of um, of break. Um, but I'm very slow and I'm also quite insecure. So, so I'm also shy about everything I'm doing, uh, but there's a remix coming out. I did a remix for Spencer Parker. Cool. We, yeah. I invited him to play a party in Belgrade with me and we had a great time and we realized we have very similar sensibility, mm-hmm. uh, the DJ sensibility. And I love a lot of his releases and I play a lot of his tracks all the time. And then he invited me just to do a remix for him without even knowing if I'm producing or not. Okay. And I had to take that challenge. So it took me a while, but I did it and, um, it's, it's already finished and it's mastered and everything. But then he told me, of course, as always, that, you know, the pressing plans and whatever. It's getting crazy so, yeah, with that stuff. Yeah, I think it's coming out. It was supposed to come in, come out in November and it's coming out in February. And then I have other tracks which sound a bit different, uh, a bit more experimental. And then some other dance-oriented uh, tracks that hopefully I will be brave enough to start sending out to people and and find um, a home for them to get released. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I get it. I still, you know, I guess with the with some of these techno records that I'm making these days, I'm I kind of know what's gonna work or what isn't. But I've been working on some other stuff lately where uh, you get kind of nervous to send it out, like because you know what I mean. It's a little bit outside of your comfort zone and. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to kind of work up the the guts to send it sometimes. Yeah, for me, it's more like I really feel like I'm a DJ. I don't feel like I'm a producer, and I I'm not I'm not so confident as a as a producer, and I don't have that much knowledge and experience. Um, but then, like comparing to some other people that I know, I have as much knowledge. So I don't know, but I just feel more like a DJ and I feel like if I start sending out these tracks or releasing them, I actually like hate this whole pressure of like this imperative of having a release. Like you have to have a release. Do you like feel it, that right now? Um, I feel like, um, I don't feel it so much personally, but I, I've, I, it exists it for exists. sure. Yeah. It's, it's there. And I feel it a little bit personally, I'm really trying not to um, let me like let I'm trying not to get influenced by it. Um, But I see and I'm like, this really makes for me, it never really made sense uh, because these are two. It is a bit ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. I mean, it both of these um, mm, both of these sides take uh, of this of this world takes so much time and so much effort so if you want to be a really great DJ, you really need to invest a lot of time. And then if you want to be a great producer, even more or the same amount of time. And sometimes it's hard hard for one person to achieve both. Mm-hmm. And your producing skills um, or your music talent, like producing music talent, doesn't say anything about your DJing. So it, do- it doesn't make sense to get booked for some releases because sometimes you're just not as good a DJ. Or the other way around. Yeah, I mean. So I just, I just wouldn't like to have uh, something coming out um, out of a need for a release. I don't want that. 
Yeah, totally. I like it actually to, makes sense, yeah, not just, because you feel pressure. Yeah, I just want to be happy with what I have made. Like I just want this music to sound good or at least decent. <laughs> totally. I can't argue with that. Well, um we've we've gone an hour and a half now. I know we got to get you some dinner. I got to go to the bathroom, so we'll wrap this up here. So pretty who's going who's going to listen to I don't know if anybody's still <laughs> to, listening. To I this think hour and a, a half, maybe just uh, my parents and <laughs> Well, it's, it's funny. I and the best friends, like really best friends. <laughs> I well, I yeah, I was I was in the car with somebody uh, a couple weeks ago and he's like, "Yeah, you always say that two hours because some of these are like two hours he's like you think nobody's listening but just so you know i'm still listening so <laughs> there's about four people out there that's, that are going to be listening cool. right now yeah that's nice and so, they can skip ahead so shout out to the four people that are still listening yeah. shout out to the five that downloaded it um, <laughs> now there's a little more but uh thank you so much for coming on of course you're always welcome to come back you know so thanks for thanks for inviting me and giving me this much time to express myself <laughs> No problem. Um, anything you want to say before we shut the mics off? Um, like a, a message for everyone? Whatever. <laughs> whatever. Uh, something that pisses you off, a message of, of hope, I don't know, whatever. Um, a message of hope. Uh, the better you look, the more you see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was, I did not expect. This has double meaning. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Well, thanks for coming on. And uh, oh yeah, is there any other podcast or something that you want to plug? Um, uh, this will probably be out in a week and a half, probably two weeks. There's nothing coming out in the meantime. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is it. Uh, catch her on the road if you're curious. In India, come join me in India. India That's is really a good <laughs> good space to see her. Uh, Facebook and Google Tiana T and all that. Everybody, have a good day. Bye bye. Bye.